Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 29. This week, we talk with Jess Borland about SQL Server, loads of Azure announcements from TechEd Europe, and making math easy with PhotoMath. Hey, Carl, we have a great guest today. How's it going? Pretty good. Yeah, we sure do. Yeah, so we have Jess Borland. She's a consultant at Brent Ozar Unlimited. She's a SQL Server MVP. She's an author, speaker, runner, and more. How's it going, Jess? It's going great. Good morning, Jason. Good morning, Carl. <laughs> great to be talking to you. So yeah. we'll uh, we'll talk to you just a little bit on SQL Server. Otherwise, we're going to jump into the news and feel free to comment on uh, anything that we're talking about. Sure. <laughs> so, Carl, I see the first one in here is uh, super important. Emoji support in Bing. Yep. And, and I ran across this by accident before I even saw the news article. Uh, a friend of mine had IM'd me something that had the Unicode pile of poo symbol. And I noticed <laughs> that the uh, um, when I copied that into Bing that my results looked weird compared to what I was searching for. So I removed that Unicode symbol and I got different results. And what this article shows is uh, you could do a search just in emoji. So if you uh, put in the Fuji mountain symbol and the Apple symbol, it'll show you results for Fuji apples. And so you actually search for the poo symbol. Is that what you're telling me, Carl? Yeah, you can enter that. I did search for that. <laughs> okay. The copy and pasted text included that, and it skewed my results, if you can imagine. Okay, I learn something new about you every day. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good stuff. And then you have a real favicon generator. Is that how you say it? Favicon, favicon? I, I say favicon. Okay. Uh, we'll just go with that as the correct way. Okay. Um. So... <laughs> Back in the day, all you really had to do to get your favicon up there is just have a favicon.ico and everything was all cool and hunky-dory. Well, nowadays you could have a, you know, favicon.png and all sorts of extensions off of that, you know, have different icon sizes. Um, Android wants something different. iPhone wants something different. Windows wants something different. And what this does is if you put in your, um, your image for your favicon, it will generate all of the different images based on that including the markup because they all want different markup in the head as well of your website. So going over the, uh, when we recently redid our website for the podcast, you know, we added some of the, some of these, not all of them. And, you know, it was kind of a pain just for what should be a nice small little image. Okay. So, so you, didn't, you, you didn't know about this at the time. I no, I found it. I found this, uh, this week. So, okay. um, this is something we'll definitely be upgrading soon. So it, Check out realfavicongenerator.net and uh, play with it. It'll also, you can put in a website and uh, detect to see how how well they're scoring, you know, hitting all of the, you know, different platforms. Okay. So you can see if your site is missing something. Looks pretty sophisticated. And actually what I, what I really like on this page is right at the bottom says, not convinced, check your existing favicon. Favicon, is that how I'm saying it? Sure. Okay. <laughs> with our online tool and see what can be improved. So yeah, you just pop your website in there and hit a button. That's that's pretty cool. Is this going to be the next GIF versus GIF debate, you guys? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> we probably just don't know how to say it. With GIF GIF, I think what I'm I'm just gonna always say GIF GIF. That way I don't anger anybody. <laughs> that solves that one. This one's it's too hard to say this one quickly, so I don't know. Maybe somebody will email us and tell us how it's uh, how it's pronounced. It's like the Varkar Varkar debate in SQL Server. Yeah, or even Varchar, yeah. Well, yes, that one too. What something? Yeah. <laughs> Fun. Okay, and then new get must haves. I know you're excited about this one, Carl. And this looks pretty cool. Yeah, as a developer, you know, new get is pretty much awesome if you're in the .NET world. And there's a website called NewGetMustHaves.com. What this has is it has a bunch of new get packages grouped by technology. Mm-hmm. So you could go in and if you're doing something with WinRT, they have a bunch of packages for WinRT. Or if you're doing so for something for CSS, it has a bunch of the popular ones in there. You know, if you don't feel like searching for it or if you're not finding what you want in the NuGet search. Okay. So. Yeah. And I don't know if you, you know, speaking of NuGet is awesome. I don't know if you've seen some of the ASP.NET V next stuff, but I've seen uh, like a, a demo of uh, Visual Studio um, sort of, I don't know if it's V next or, or, or if it's, um, you know, just a portion of Visual Studio changing, but I saw a cool feature where instead of referencing DLLs, you're actually referencing NuGet packages. So they actually show up in that reference list and then you can sort of navigate all the dependencies and, and things like that. So, you know, new, if you're not, if you're not working with NuGet today, which would be pretty tough to avoid, um, it's going to become more and more important as time goes on. Absolutely. 
Okay, so this is the big news of the week, and we're recording this on day one of Tech Ed Europe, and we're gonna this will get published after uh, sort of the dust has settled. But I think all the pretty much all the big announcements are are you know revealed on day one, and then all the details will come out afterwards. So I just wanted to run through uh, a lot of the the big announcements from Tech Ed Europe, and this happened. I think it was around like twelve thirty a.m. our time is when all this was happening. Um. So lots of these are all Azure announcements. I don't I don't know if there were anything any announcements that weren't Azure related, but um, let's just go through these. So the first one, and this is this is huge with um, you know big enterprise customers, premium storage. So this is a new option. I know this was actually announced a few days ago, but this is a this is a really big deal. Um, you can have up to this will allow you in a virtual machine up in Azure to have up to thirty two terabytes of storage and. Uh, what you can do is you can dial in the amount of um, IOPS that you need. So you can get up to, um, actually I should say not up to, you can go over 50,000 IOPS. Um, so this is important for things like SQL Server, whenever you're running that in Azure. I don't, I, have you played around with that, Jess? Have you run a SQL Server in a VM? I have. I okay. have both SQL Server in Azure VMs and the SQL Server databases Okay. in Azure. Yeah, so you're probably aware if you run... Um, you know, pretty big workload in there. The IOPS are are really the limiting factor today, and this is what fixes that. Yeah, that that will definitely be a selling point for some people that have hesitated to make the move. Yeah, right now, what you end up doing is, you know, each each disk gives you, I think, about uh, five hundred IOPS, and what you end up doing is you put sixteen separate disks into a storage space array. And then you can get up to, I think, like 8,000 IOPS or maybe even some of the bigger machines, you can go like 16,000. But this will let you dial in that performance and it's going to be a lot easier to to get really high-end performance. Yeah, not having to string everything together. Yep. Uh, a couple services have gone general availability. Uh, one is the anti-malware feature. Um, so I'm not really going to talk about that too much. Event Hubs, which is an amazing, amazing service in, in Azure. So this is the service we're doing uh, ingestion from millions of devices simultaneously, all pushing data, you know, every second. Uh, so this, you know, this can ingest uh, gigabytes of data per second, depending on how many of these you set up. Um, a new service that's being announced is uh, Azure Batch. And this was part of the, um, this was through a, a acquisition of a company called Green Button, uh, which happened, I think about, I think it was even less than a year ago. So think of this as an assembly line for your data. Um, so it's got automation in there for, um, programmically, um, you know, setting up different jobs and, um, you know, creating custom jobs and then having this, uh, you know, kind of fan out to hundreds or thousands of machines. Um, another new service that was announced is the Azure data factory. This one is pretty cool. And actually this one is probably of interest to you, Jess. So this will combine data from on-premise, uh, sources. So there's a, I think there's a little agent that sits there and, uh, and pushes the data up to Azure. But then you can also take your Azure data. So if you have, you know, databases up there or storage or things like that, this will um, create a pipeline where it will combine all of those different sources and then automating the process, automate the processing of that data. So it's a pretty neat service. Interesting. That seems to fit in pretty well with the, uh, the direction Microsoft started taking with SQL Server 2014 and the capabilities mm-hmm. that we have with with azure and backups and availability groups and such so yeah the strategy is kind of starting to come together i can see that yep yeah so this is for you know this is really for for batch type data where you have um you know all these different stores and it's things that are typically not you know they're not really real-time critical um it sort of happens in the background and then there's also this new service called stream analytics and this is really for real-time streaming data so as data comes into event hubs, the service I talked about before, this is for actually um, writing some logic against that and it actually uses a SQL-like uh, temporal query language. So it it looks like SQL, but it has uh, all these temporal operators. So you can actually query um, against a separate dimension of time, which is pretty cool. So you can, yeah, so you can have like uh, things like tumbling windows and uh, look for values, you know, maybe an average value that, that goes above a certain threshold or, or things like that. So you write these in this query language, and then this can output to um, to a couple different places, such as SQL Server or back into Event Hubs. So this is this is great because what you can what you can do is using Event Hubs, you can have your data 
be ingested through event hubs. And then event hubs will actually split that data into multiple streams. You can have one of those streams go into the uh, stream analytics for the real-time processing. You can have another stream of data go into, um, you know, let's say blob storage or a SQL database. And then you can use Azure Data Factory, uh, you know, in the background to sit there and, and, and process that batch data. So really, this is just rounding out that complete story of, you know, real-time analytics, batch analytics, um, you know, any type of analytics that you can think of. Yeah. Um, and then speaking of lots of data, uh, we need bigger machines to support some of these things, right? So there's the new G series of VMs. You guys know what G, G stands for in this case? Ginormous? No, close. <laughs> Godzilla. I guess too, Carl. Nope, Godzilla. <laughs> So it's the uh, Godzilla series. So they are just gigantic machines. So the biggest one, you can have up to 32 cores, 448 gigabytes of RAM, and then six and a half terabytes of uh, local SSD storage. So I can, I can see Jess is getting excited over the, uh, <laughs> the SQL possibilities here. Language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, server likes to eat for dinner. <laughs> yeah. Well, and actually, so I, in, 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 uh, announced, I don't think we talked about it on the show, but not too long ago, um, Whenever we announced the first, I think it was the D series, which had uh, local SSD storage. What that was useful for is buffer pool extensions in SQL Server. So using the SSD drive to sort of extend your your virtual memory. Two new data center regions in uh, Australia are now online. So you can uh, you can now create uh, virtual machines and use the other Azure, Azure services right in Australia, which is good. Um, multiple NIC support for virtual machines. This one is, uh, this one was a blocker for a lot of people. So this, this allows you to create fairly complex networks where you can sort of have a, a front door machine that's, um, you know, pro, you know, acting, like I said, acting as that, that front door and, uh, is, is sort of your, um, uh, your DMZ machine and then passing on traffic to these machines hidden in the back. Um, or any kind of packet filtering or firewalls or things like that can use this type of uh, feature. Uh, web jobs, which I think we've talked about before, is now general availability. Uh, there are now network security groups. So um, this is actually pretty complex. I won't I won't drill into it too deeply, but um, this allow in, in sort of at a high level allows really fine grained control of all your network traffic in Azure. So this is uh, this is a big deal for for a lot of people. Um, forced tunneling through site to site VPN. So I know we've talked about on the show before, there's, there's a couple different ways. If you want to create a hybrid solution with Azure and connect that to your, your on-premises systems, um, you can do a site to site VPN, which is Azure talking back to your VPNing back into your, um, premises. You can also, uh, initiate the VPN connection locally and, and talk to Azure. Um, and then there's another feature called express route where you can actually get a fiber connection between, uh, your buildings and the um, and and Azure. So what this is, this allows you to um, if you if you want to do forced tunneling, which makes it so that um, traffic has to go through that tunnel. That is now possible. Um, Express Route has some new features as well. So Express Route now can be shared between its subscriptions. So if you have um, a whole bunch of Azure subscriptions and you want to share that fiber connection between them, that's not a problem. Um, and then the last one here is Azure Marketplace. And this is pretty cool. You can go out there if you go out to uh, portal.azure.com and look at the, uh, you know, kind of the, the modern portal for Azure. You can go out there and there's a ton of systems out there. So you can go out there. There's there's uh, software from IBM, SAP, Datastax, you know, Cassandra Systems, uh, McAfee, Nginx, um, pretty much any of these. You can just go out there. <clears throat> there's just a gallery and you can say, you know, give me a Cassandra system. And, uh, and it does it for you. So that's kind of a, a big deal. So you can search for systems, purchase them, deploy them all from in that portal. So it's, things are, things keep getting easier and easier. That was a lot of Azure today, Jason. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know it's a good day talking about, uh, data SQL and Azure. This is, this is going to be the best episode ever. <laughs> <laughs> let's get to, uh, let's talk to Jess. So she is, uh, you know, I, I, I gave her an intro before, but she is a, a SQL server fanatic, which is, which is awesome. I love people that, that vote, that, that have like this, uh, this singular, you know, this precise focus on one thing. I love talking to those people. Yeah. So in, in addition to everything that we mentioned, um, I noticed that you're a member of quite a few different SQL groups and you even run a couple, right? Can you yes, hit those for a bit? 
Yeah. So I would, I would definitely not be where I am in my career if I had not been introduced to user groups way back when I was going to Fox Valley Technical College. And my .NET teacher made us go to the .NET user group at Fox Valley Tech, uh, the whatever first Wednesday of the month that they were having it. So then when I got into SQL Server, I was like, hey, I should find a local SQL user group. The local was Oh, about an hour and a half away. <laughs> so I started going down to Waukesha, Wisconsin, um, got introduced to speaking there, um, eventually started a user group in Madison, Wisconsin, slightly closer. And now I run FoxPass, which is the SQL Server user group in uh, based in Appleton, Wisconsin, so just a little bit south of Green Bay. Um, we have grown to over 150 people in two years, which is pretty wow. phenomenal for this area. You know, we're regularly getting 20, 30 people at each meeting. Um, so really, there's this huge need for people to learn about SQL Server. So I love being able to provide that learning for them. Um one of the things that I help run is a SQL Saturday then each year in Wisconsin. Um, SQL Saturdays are these free all day, typically on a Saturday. Imagine that. <laughs> Go figure. Uh, Training events. We usually run ours in the springtime. So I think we're planning on April 11th, 2015 for the next SQL Saturday Madison. But it's great, right? Like we have six to eight tracks and there are five slots starting at like 9 a.m. and going till 5 p.m. Um, we get Microsoft MVPs and Microsoft MCMs and just a lot of local people that deal with everything from, you know, just straight up, how do I make database administration easier or how do I automate it with PowerShell to how do I write better T-SQL and how do I write better reports? And then there's the business intelligence end of the spectrum too, right? Like, I don't know much about that, but there are plenty of people that are experts on all of Microsoft's new power tools, you know, Power Query, Power Pivot, Power Map, um, and SQL Server Analysis Services. So SQL Saturday serves this huge wide range of those. Excited about planning the next one. And last but not least is probably my favorite, which is called Tech on Tap, which you can check out by going to techontap.org. Um, a couple years ago, a friend of mine had the idea of why not combine technology training, which we love, with beer at a microbrewery, <laughs> which we also love. Um, so over the years, we've done these full day tech on tap events where we pick a topic. In the past, we've done uh, virtualization and PowerShell and SharePoint and PHP and just different technologies. We pick a different technology each time. We go to the brew pub, we have a couple beers, we have speakers, we have Q&A, we get a brewery tour. Fantastic event. I love the people that I've met through that. Um, and you guys will be excited to know that our next one in February of 2015 is going to be nothing but .NET. So, oh, nice. yeah. So if anyone listening is interested, techontap.org, February 2015, Appleton, Wisconsin. Make a day of it free beer. Okay. <laughs> I I will be there. If I'm available, I'm going to be there for sure. That's, that's in the show notes. So nobody has an excuse to forget. All right. Excellent. So yeah, all of these events that I run, I also, you know, I speak at them. Um, I promote them. But I, again, I've just gotten to know a ton of really good people that have this huge wide range of skills. I built my network up so much by doing all of this. So I encourage everyone to take advantage of whatever learning opportunities they have in their area. Okay. So I'm curious, what, what got you started in this whole area of databases? I mean, were you originally, did you sort of start as a developer or was it just, you were always drawn to databases? I had started out as a developer. Yes. So I was going to be a .NET developer and along the way, uh, I had to take a SQL class in uh, college. And it was, it was just a really basic one, like, right? Like how to write a select statement and how to write a from statement and what the where clause is for. Um, but I found out I was really good at that, right? Like it was just kind of like solving a math puzzle. Um, and so where I was working, I was part help desk, part network person, part developer. And then the DBA had this stack of report requests. And he said, 
Jess, you know how to write SQL now? He installed reporting services 2005 on my machine, handed me a stack of report requests and said, if you could have a couple of these done by Friday, it would be great. <laughs> uh, so I learned to write really good T-SQL. I learned to write reports and I absolutely fell in love with SQL Server from there. Um, I started... As, you know, as I got better with the database or with the reporting stuff, I actually started taking an interest in uh, the server side of it, the administration portion, the backups, the high availability. Um, when the DBA left, I took on his role, uh, found out how much I really didn't know. And that's when I started becoming super involved with the SQL Server community. That's when I really had to reach out to the people in my user group, the people I'd met through Twitter, uh, reading more blogs reading more books. Uh, and then, yeah, after some time there, I went on to become a DBA at Kimberly Clark. So big Fortune 500 company, right? Huge amount of just production SQL Server instances, not to mention development and QA, a whole team of DBAs, very different from small company that I was working at with fewer than 10 SQL servers. Learned a lot there too. So you're a SQL MVP and as such, you probably think that SQL is pretty awesome. Um, can you share what? Can you share uh, what do you think is so great about SQL Server in particular? I think one of the best things about SQL Server, and also one of the most frustrating things, is its versatility. So it can be used for anything from a small 250 meg database that might hold just some, you know, basic information off a factory production line, like how many parts we got through per second, um, all the way up to these multi terabyte data warehouses that crunch numbers for huge systems. Um, there's a little bit of everything in terms of high availability and disaster recovery, right? We can still use log shipping, which is this old school standby, easy to use, yet very reliable technology up to the new hotness of multi data center, uh, multi subnet, always on availability groups that can combine on premises and Azure replicas. It has something for everyone. Which, on the other hand, is frustrating because as a SQL Server MVP, people are like, so Jess, tell me more about SQL Server analysis services. And I'll be like, no. <laughs> <laughs> I no, that's a, that's a good point. I mean, it's it's an entire subculture. <laughs> Let me point you to a blog with for someone that knows more about it. Yeah. That's, that's funny. Um, I get that with the cloud too. You know, I'm like, the, <laughs> I'm supposed to know everything that, that about every application that runs on the cloud. Yeah. So you mentioned, um, and, and I, I actually, uh, I saw this in your bio, you had mentioned, uh, administering 600 SQL server instances. Mm. So tell us what that's like. It's a challenge. That would be the first is <laughs> with it. Um, it definitely requires automate, automate, automate automate everything. Um, so when we did that uh, at, at some of the bigger companies I've worked at, one of the downsides is you, you kind of have to step outside of SQL Server itself. So up to a certain point, you can do things like set up SQL Server agent jobs and check them on each individual server. Once you get into somewhere between like maybe 50 and 100 servers, you can use the SQL Server agent um, multi-server administration and central management servers to monitor, you know, 100, maybe 200. But even that doesn't scale, scale well past a, a couple hundred. And you start have to, having to bring in other, like, enterprise-level management tools, SCOM, um, that sort of thing. The other thing that we started investing heavily in was PowerShell. Mm -hmm. uh, we, you know, you don't want to be running, you know, old school VB scripts with XP command shell still running. Just there's a lot of security dangers in that. So one of my tasks was to really start implementing error reporting and handling and, you know, installs and upgrades with PowerShell, which was a fantastic tool and really helped us expand out our capabilities. Okay. So you must really be embracing the whole like DevOps mentality then. Um, I, I definitely tried, um, mm -hmm. a little bit harder when you have, uh, a huge group of people and you yeah. have to be, have to get everyone on board, but I absolutely believe in that. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah. One of the things that uh, was really hammered into me when I was first learning how to write queries for, you know, a company is like knowing what the execution query plan is and execution stats. How important of a skill is that for an average developer to have and, and know? I think that if it's actually something I work on giving full day classes on developers for the two big things that I wish every developer that wrote against T-SQL would understand better would be number one indexes because indexes are simply the best tool for performance enhancement. You don't need to change any application code. Just write your indexes correctly. Um, and learning to read execution plans in SQL Server. So for the uninitiated, execution plans are something you can pull out of SQL Server and they tell us exactly how SQL Server ran a query. It will tell us, we scanned this table. We did a seek on this index. Um, we joined these two results together. We used parallelism to do it. We used tempdb for the result set. We had to do a very expensive sort operation because you requested an order by and don't have an index on that order. Um, this is how many rows we had to scan. This is how many rows we returned to you. Being able to see all of that and then spot the trouble and optimize it is a huge benefit for developers. I Yeah, I totally agree. We, we, uh, we would always make that, you know, on the teams that I was on, we'd always make that a, a standard practice. And Carl knows that we, we would, uh, anytime you wrote a query, I'd say, you know, run it through, get the, the actual execution plan, take a look at it. Cause what yeah. ends up happening is developers have, you know, their database has a hundred rows and that's not what production has. Not even close. Right. Right. So very, very important. Yeah. Um, and there are so many great resources out there. So you know, out on the BrentOzar.com YouTube channel earlier this year, I did a series of reading execution plan webcasts on um, just the basics, right? Like how you get an execution plan. You know, where do I go in SQL Server Management Studio? Um, how to find like the top 10 most expensive queries in your system and get their execution plans. Because if you're going to start somewhere, start with the worst, start with the bad boys. Um there's also a series of excellent books written by Grant Fritchie, also known as The Scary DBA. Uh, he works for Redgate Software and is a fellow SQL Server MVP. Um, his book is uh, SQL Server Execution Plans, and he's now on second edition. So I would highly recommend that for people looking to start reading C uh, the execution plans and and know more about them. Okay. And you said that your, you said you did a webcast and that's all publicly available. I did. So I actually did a series of them. That's um, awesome. Brentozar.com and search for execution plans. You'll see videos. I think the first one was titled don't fear the execution. Plan. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. It, it is, it is so incredibly important. Yes. That's awesome. I, I want to check that out because that, that might be my, my go-to resource for developers then to send that to them and say, just please just look at this. <laughs> excellent. excellent. So, yeah. So let's shift gears a little bit and let's talk about um, high availability. So keeping, keeping SQL server running 24 seven. So I guess, you know, how do you do it and what are the options? So I have this discussion, like one of the first things I talk about with every consulting client that I work with is, you know, the high availability disaster recovery and what we term, you know, RPO and RTO. Mm -hmm. What's your recovery point objective? How much data is the business willing to lose if something goes heads up? And then recovery time objective. On the other hand, once the server is down, how much time do we have to bring it back up? Um, and I think the number one misconception is that the business can never lose any data, right? Like we tell people will always say that the business will always say we can't ever lose any data. And I say, okay, well, then we're going to need to have multiple data centers that are live. We're going to need to build in, you know, multiple servers that are all writable at the same time. We're going to have to have lightning fast storage and networking between them. And here's the uh, blank check you'll have to write me to implement. Them. Wait, this costs money. <laughs> Oh, well, never mind. <laughs> it's still my beating heart. <laughs> uh, 
So really having a 24 by seven system, you know, we, we try to get as close as possible, but understanding that that requires really high levels of technology. Thankfully, SQL Server lets us get really close. You know, we have had clustering, which is, you know, SQL Server clustering for years, and that's been vastly improved with newer versions of Windows Server and newer versions of SQL Server. Yeah, that that used to be a lot of fun to set up. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, back in the Windows Server 2003 days? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Painfully make sure that every single thing down to our RAM chips was Microsoft certified. (laughs) Now, thankfully, it's just, does it pass the cluster validation test? Well, do you, do you still, for clustering, do you still need, uh, like, shared storage? So, you don't have to anymore. If you're okay. using Windows, I, now, I, I don't have my graph in front of me, but with Windows Server 2012, I want to say, and Windows Server 2012 R2, please double check that before making any assumptions here, Uh <laughs> You can do single node and you don't have to have shared storage any longer. Another one of the cool things that's come up with um, newer versions of clustering is new quorum models. Um, so this is something that's really exciting to me. It used to be that you, you know, for each node that you had, it had one vote. Um, so, you know, you had your server one, you had server two, and you had your shared storage, and you simply had to have a majority of those up. Um, now we can do different quorum models, and we can give each of them X number of votes. So say we had a three-node cluster with shared storage. Um, and one of those nodes went down, we could say that our primary node is now given two votes and the other one is given one vote, and thus we can move votes around. It makes a much more robust, um, much more fail-safe system, especially with multi-node clusters. And now the newer hotness uh, built on top of clustering is the always-on availability groups mm-hmm. we were first introduced with. Uh, SQL Server 2012 and have improved with SQL Server 2014. Um, so always on availability groups are really looking to be the, the combination of high availability and disaster recovery. Previously, you would have to implement two separate technologies, right? Clustering for high availability and log shipping to a DR center, you know, clustering and SAN replication to a DR center. Um, With always on availability groups, you can have, you have your primary server and then in the same data center, you can have one or more secondaries. And in a remote data center, you can have another set of secondaries which you can fail over to in the event of a disaster. Beautiful things about availability groups. Um, number one, you can have either synchronous or asynchronous secondaries. So, you know, if you have a secondary that you just want to use for reporting and it's okay if there's a couple minutes of lag time for that, use an asynchronous secondary. Um, you can have readable secondaries, which is great as opposed to you know, having to have multiple writable things, which really is a performance impact and also expensive, you can have just read-only secondaries. You can perform all of your maintenance against those readable secondaries, which is something that the DBAs love. So if you have really huge databases where uh, the backups take hours and hours and hours, offload that to a secondary. Same thing with other maintenance tasks like CheckDB, which is a necessary thing to look for corruption. Offload that. Um, some of the other things that you know developers would love is, is again, the readable secondaries and being able to point your reports, your um, data mining sources off to those secondaries as well, mm-hmm. hitting your primary transactional system. So is there any reason to to do clustering anymore? Does always on availability cover everything? It does not. So one of the main things to keep in mind is clustering is just the entire SQL Server instance, right? Every single database on the system, all your security logins and certificates, all your SQL Server agent jobs, the whole thing fails over kit and caboodle. Um, If you use availability groups, you have to set up on each node, you set up a SQL Server instance and you create the logins and then you create your SQL Server agent jobs. 
You put in your databases, you set up the databases as a group that will fail over. You still have to automate a way to keep your logins synced, keep your agent jobs synced, um, set up different schedules for those. So in some cases, a cluster is still the right answer. In other cases, availability groups is the right answer. Uh, you just have to know what the business requirements are. Okay. Yeah. Hey, you know, uh, switching gears again a, a little bit, you know, when I look at uh, Stack Overflow or like Hacker News and seeing what, you know, all the cool guys are doing, I hear a lot of talk about NoSQL. Can you explain to us what that is and, you know, how that affects SQL Server? You guys are in luck because last weekend I was just at SQL Saturday, Minnesota, and sat <laughs> through a fantastic uh, NoSQL presentation um, from Lara Rubelke, a Microsoft employee. Um, just a little brush up on my my terminology and what the newest, latest, and greatest is. So NoSQL is really just kind of moving away from the traditional relational database management system, right? Where Whereas in SQL Server or the other relational databases, we have tables that have foreign keys and relationships. Sometimes that slows access down, right? Sometimes we just have a pile of data we want to store that has related attributes um, and we want to skim through that later. So we might use something like a key value database for that, um, a document database. Um, sometimes we want to analyze and trend databases more, so we might use some sort of graphing database. Uh, I think that, you know, MongoDB is a really popular one in terms of um, document database. So it's, it's really, again, it comes down to the business requirements. Sometimes SQL Server isn't the answer for everything. If you have a pile of of unstructured data, and it's more important to be able to, um, you know, search through reams of data for one particular value, something, uh, you know, some sort of key value pair database might be better. If you really need that highly structured, highly transactional system, mm -hmm. you might still go with SQL Server. I think the greatest thing that Lara mentioned, and actually, let me get out my notes, because she mentioned a uh, particular paper, which I thought was fascinating, and some of our listeners may also want to dig into if they're interested, was Eric Brewer's CAP theorem in which CAP stands for Consistency, Availability, and Partition Tolerance. And uh, yeah, the thing is with what Lara stressed with NoSQL is that when you're looking at not, not relational databases, uh, what you're going to get is any two of those, right? You'll either get consistency and availability, but not partition tolerant. You won't be able to scale it up. Um, or you'll get availability and partition tolerance, but you're going to have to look at being eventually consistent, like with MongoDB. Um, so it really depends on where in the scope of things your needs fall. Okay. So the industry isn't isn't necessarily leaving SQL for, for NoSQL. Not it's complementary and pick the right tool for the job. Yeah, it's really becoming more of a data ecosystem, mm -hmm. I would say. You know, companies aren't storing just one type of data, right? They have, sure, they're going to have their standard transactional stuff that's going to stay in SQL Server. You know, MongoDB isn't going to hold your orders and your customer information. That's still highly related. That's very relational. But you want something where you can store all of the data from clicks on your website and um, things that come in from your app, what users are interested in. But that might not be relational data, right? That may just be a, a key value pair thing. Um, you may want to store um, historical stuff and you might decide to keep that in more of a document database. The good news is we're getting good at joining all of those together and making tools that talk to them. Um, so for a data professional these days, um, it, it's more, it, it's less about being tied to a specific technology, right? 
you're not going to be just a SQL Server DBA in a few years. You're going to be a database administrator and a data professional, but you'll need to know how to administer and take, you know, you'll need to know the care and feeding of several types of different databases to really be <laughs> I like that. I like that. <laughs> did you, uh, did you want to check on your poor dog? <laughs> I hear him whining back there. Oh, he's fine. He just really <laughs> wants to come in the office. I gotcha. Yeah, All right. Fine. Okay. I just wanted to check. He's right. he's a German short hair pointer and I love him, but people refer to their pointers as Velcro dogs because they have to be like right here next to you the entire time. <laughs> and especially since he's sick, he's very much a Velcro dog today. <laughs> All right. Earlier you mentioned, you know, two things that, developers should know. So what are maybe some things that our developers are doing wrong in regards to, you know, developing and managing their databases? Well, let's see. One of the one of the first and easiest things that I am going to say that that I think developers could be more aware of when it comes to developing is data types. So I frequently see that that when we develop an application and are creating a database for it, we might not seriously think about, okay, this is going to be, you know, a character field with 25 things that come in, um, or this is going to be a notes field that really requires um, a thousand characters. What we'll see is everything in a database is set up to accept 250 characters, whether that's going to be 10 in the end or 249. You know, we use big int for everything because we have, you know, we haven't thought about how many records are we actually going to need to store in this database and would an integer just be okay? And data types really matter. Um, if we have too big of data types, our databases are huge and we have all of this wasted space. Um, if we, and then, on the flip side, the other thing I see after database design is we'll be writing code. And this isn't just a an application developer problem. I see the same thing happen with DBAs that write scripts. They don't pay attention to what data types are in the table. And we build stored procedures and we write code and we might pick a char 50 field to match up to an integer field. And we all of a sudden have all of this crazy internal data type conversions that have to happen. They always end up happening on the SQL server side, and they always kill our CPU usage. So data types, that would be number one thing that I would say. Um, number two, for those of you that are using ORMs, please make sure that your ORMs are properly configured for SQL server. Um, I see a lot of times that, that ORMs merely abuse the SQL server rather than play nicely with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and ORMs are great. I understand that the two models between, you know, classes and methods and then, you know, tables with their fields and foreign keys and parent-child relationships are very different. ORMs can help us map them. We just need to make sure we're going in and setting them up correctly. Yeah, we've mentioned this on the show before, but uh, one of the things that, uh, was a policy when Jason and I worked together was any link query we wrote, we had to view in SQL profiler. So yeah. that's another great tool for just realizing that you can see what the ORM is generating exactly. And then once again, bring back to what you said before, you can run that query and get the data exe execution plan to see if it is as efficient as it needs to be. Yeah. ORMs are not an excuse to, to not learn SQL. It's, yep. it's, it's something, it's just another tool to help you and you really have to understand what's going on. Exactly. It's, it's no excuse for not knowing a, a little bit of T-SQL and understanding the fundamentals. Um, although Carl, if I, if I can go off your comment there about the <laughs> profiler, as a long time DBA, I would just like to say, let's all step back from profiler for a moment because Microsoft has introduced a new tool. It started with SQL Server 2008, and it stank. It was terrible. It was called Extended Events, and the only thing it made you do was write horrible, complicated T-SQL in which you had to know what classes and events you were looking for, and then when you captured the data to a file, you had to shred the XML to see the results. And I tried to learn it, and all hope was lost, and I went back to Profiler. So SQL Server 2008 R2 came out. 
and they added a whole bunch of events to extended events. And it was still this terrible T-SQL in XML. And I threw up my hands and said, I'm still not learning it. <laughs> <laughs> but then SQL Server 2012 came out. And they added a functional GUI, which actually works. And now, in 2014, they've extended it even further. So if there's one thing that I can tell people about learning more in regards to troubleshooting SQL Server and capturing what their server is doing, it would be learn extended events, particularly with SQL Server 2012 going forward. Um, the downside to, to profile, you know, extended events does everything Profiler did and more. Um, as a matter of fact, as of 2008, Microsoft has stopped adding events for new technologies. Availability groups, you can't even check on anything related to them with Profiler. You have to use extended events. The, the new hotness of in-memory tables, or Hecaton, as it's known with 2014, there's no support for viewing information about that in Profiler. You have to use extended events. Um, and it's a cool new technology. It's so much less resource intensive. You know, you were always warned, never run Profiler on a production system. And, and if you do run it against just a one database and, and don't leave it running for too long because it'll bring the server to its knees. Extended events, I've successfully run multiple event sessions against a production database with minimal impact to the system. And then I can go back and view the data later. It's fantastic. Pretty cool. So speaking of SQL 2014, what other uh, what are some of the cool features that that uh, are in there now? Oh my goodness, there's so <laughs> such a <laughs> Can you tell I'm a SQL Server nerd at all. No, Jess. That's why we're that's why we're talking to you. <laughs> um, so one of the things that that is big and huge and a game changer is what was codenamed Hecaton and is now referred to as in-memory tables. So what people have been running into with standard, you know, transactional relational database systems is as the number of transactions per second increase, and we're talking really high volume systems here, you know, 75,000 transactions per second, 100,000 transactions per second and higher, no matter how well our tables were written and indexed, no matter how fast of storage we put them on, we still ran into locking and blocking, right? Like only one transaction can write to an object at one time. We can have multiple readers, um, but we were really running into these locking situations. So in-memory OLTP is this whole new engine for SQL. Um, it sits alongside the traditional relational engine, but you create new tables. So at the basic, you have to go back and you have to create a new file group in your database and you have to create a new table. Um, you have to make sure that the table says it's in memory. Um, and then you have to actually recompile your stored procedures so that they use the new table. But when they do, they've seen up to 10 times the throughput of transactions per second because what happens is we just write these, all of the changes that are going to happen to a table get written into memory with internal timestamps attached. And then SQL Server in the background just figures out what the most recent value is when something goes to read it. No locking. Lock-free, latch-free data structures uh, for really, really high throughput systems. They can be fantastic. Lots of caveats on them because in 2014, there's still V1 and there's things like we can't create non-clustered indexes on them, but it's a step in the right direction. Mm -hmm. See, that's what I hadn't realized eventually is whenever you, whenever you start to rethink SQL Server in memory, um, all of the traditional things that are there, like you mentioned, locking, latching, um, even pages, um, all of those concepts just go out the window. I mean, even, even trying to do any kind of data ordering or anything like that, I mean, when you have virtually instant access to any piece of data, um, you know, all, none of the previous rules apply. And that, I think that's why it's such a dramatic shift away from, from everything that was traditional. It is, it is. Um, I'm excited that, you know, next week I'll be at MVP summit and past summit, the largest SQL server conference in the world uh, in Seattle. And I'm excited to hear more about about what's coming with that in, in the next couple of years and what kind of improvements they're doing with it and, and how customers are using it. Um, that'll be exciting. 
Um, there's some other cool new stuff in SQL Server 2014, too. One of the things you mentioned earlier was buffer pool extensions. Mm-hmm. I find that not a lot of people know about this, but uh, what it enables you to do, you know, um, SQL Server loves memory, right? You mentioned I'm a runner. I love food after my races. SQL Server loves memory the way I love food after I run a race. <laughs> I want and I want it now. Um but sometimes on systems, we're constrained by physically by the amount of RAM chips we can put in our server. Only so many slots. So what buffer pool extensions allow us to do if we have local SSD, we can create a file. I believe it can be up to 40 times the size of how much physical RAM we have. And it works as kind of a secondary cache. So memory will still always hold what we consider the dirty pages, right? Those that have had modifications made to them. Um, But we still have our clean pages, stuff we've read off a disk that we've just read from, we haven't modified. If we have enough dirty pages, those clean pages can get kicked back to disk, but we might still need them for reading things. So the way buffer pool extensions work, this, this secondary cache that's on our SSD holds our clean pages. It's much faster access, um, and it's a really good way to extend your your memory capabilities, especially because it's available in Standard Edition. (laughs) 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 Oh, there's no price difference. (laughs) It's a minor thing, right? Yeah, yeah. It's just money. That's pretty cool. Okay. What else? Uh, there were no major T-SQL enhancements for 2014, which I know is kind of a kind of a bummer for some people, um, unfortunately. Um, what else do we have? We have this function that I that is called delayed durability. I consider it running with scissors unless you're very careful, but um, what it allows you to do is instead of every transaction having to be synchronous to the transaction log, if you're okay with just sending a request into SQL Server, maybe a session state or something, and you're not getting fast enough response, you can say, you know, at that statement level or at that stored procedure level or even at that database level, again, use with caution here, um, I'm just going to send my request in. I don't need confirmation that it was written. I'm just going to assume it was written and it can be written to later. Um, so delayed durability is kind of a cool thing. Um, I, I've seen some people using it. Yeah. Cool. Good stuff. All right. And this is probably the most important sequel question of the day, but what is your favorite punk rock band? <laughs> <laughs> You're changing gears on me. My absolute favorite punk rock band of all time is the Dropkick Murphys. Irish punk rock band out of Boston. I have loved them since... Their first full-length album came out in 1998. Okay. I wrote that down. I'm going to check them out. Okay. Uh, yeah. I have most of their albums as well. So, yeah, I would definitely agree they are a pretty rocking band. So, what is your favorite Dropkick Murphys album? Um, Greatest Hits. <laughs> I, I, can, <laughs> I would have to look it up because I am terrible about names, but it's it, it's. Black, gray, and green, I, it's, which I know it doesn't help. <laughs> I'm terrible with album cover artwork. So, you know, I couldn't tell you which one that is. Well, and, and, and <laughs> albums are, are sort of a loose way of grouping songs these days, right? Yeah. But, yeah. you know, I'm still an album fan. I'm well. just going to say that uh, I am a huge fan of the album. Uh, and then my last question is, what happened on May 5th, 2012? <laughs> That's one of my favorite questions. So on May 5th, 2012, I ran and completed my very first marathon. Okay. You, you, I spent way too much time trying to figure out what happened that day. Because <laughs> we, were, we were looking up some of your background and, and you had that question on, uh, on, on your page, I think, with, through your employer. Yes. And I'm like Googling it and binging it. And I'm like, what the heck happened that day? fun because that was two days before my official start date with the Brent Ozar team. Uh, Yeah, I I had just started running, you know, as of this month, I started running about five years ago. I did a 5k and then a 10k and then I 
eventually worked my way up to a half marathon. And then, yeah, I ran my first full marathon down in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And it was, it was an experience. Okay. It's not for everyone, but I loved it. Yep. So we have a, we have a little game that we play that you're probably not aware of. I need you to pick a number between one and four. Between one and four? Yes. I'm going to pick one. Okay. Would you rather live next to a garbage dump or next to an old Indian burial ground? Ooh, I would live next to an old Indian burial ground. Yeah. It's not going to smell as bad as the garbage dump is. Right. I'll take the potential ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that would be my choice as well. Okay, Carl, pick a number between one and four. Two. Two. Would you rather turn into a fly or turn into a cockroach? Well, those aren't very good choices. They're not very good choices, <laughs> but I, I, I guess just going off the fact that if a, a nuclear attack happened, I have a one in five chance of surviving or a four in five <laughs> chance of surviving. I would pick a cockroach. Wow. It, that's, that's the odds? Like, you yeah. know the odds offhand. Well, well they, <laughs> a cockroach only divides its DNA one in every five days. So that okay. means, and you, the problem with the radiation is it, only destroys actively, you know, changing DNA. Uh, so if you're, so if you're not actually dividing your DNA to, you know, grow, then you don't have a problem with the radiation going off those days. So yeah, they, they are nature survivors. Carl, what is your app of the week? So my app of the week is an app called Photomath. And what this is, is it turns your phone, uh, it, it opens up the camera, you point it at a math equation and it'll detect the equation and solve it for you. So yeah, this is mind blowing. So, you have to look at the video for this. And, and it is so quick. I've, I've used it quite a, quite a bit. I've tried it um, in word. You can insert equations as there should be written. It detects those. It, it detects them. If you just type them in with like using the asterisk for a multiplication symbol, if you write it out by hand, it detects them so quickly. It's amazing. And uh, yeah, photomath.net. You can go there and uh, they have it for all the major platforms. Yeah, uh, it, it, it looks amazing. And uh, and you said it works very well. And what's what's amazing, too, is that it's for iPhone and Windows phone and not for Android yet. Oh, I, Win. I apparently missed that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Android version is not out. Yes. Uh, so one, you know, be aware of this and two, make sure your kids are not aware of this because I'm sure teachers <laughs> would hate this. I know. And it, it'll even show your work, which is is just amazing. So I'm going to I'm going to try this with my my kids math book, but I'm not going to tell them that way. If he comes to me with a problem, he'll be like. Uh, just look that way for a moment while I think, <laughs> <laughs> and then I have a yo app of the week. <laughs> so it's called yo. Have you, have you seen this Jess? I have not. Okay. Well, I'm going to have, you'll have to be in my yo network. This is the latest. Uh, I don't think it's a, it's not a social network, but it's, it's an app. And, uh, what you can do is you can, uh, it, it like I have Carl in my list. He's the only person I have in this list. I can push, uh, his name and it says to him, yo. That's, that's all it does. <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, I got a kick out of it. So this is all, this is available for windows phone. And I, I think it's actually on, on every platform, but all yes. it does is uh, send yo. So you can, uh, you can add me, add me as a friend and, uh, we can just yo randomly. This, this is what the world has come to, right? Okay. So, um, let's see here. So where, Jess, where can people find you? I mean, we have, we're going to have like, uh, looks like you have about 50 different links that Carl has put together that we can put in the show notes, <laughs> but if people are interested in learning more or reaching out to you, where can they find you? Um, so the number one place to find me most days is Twitter. I confess I am a Twitter junkie. Uh, so <laughs> I am at G R R L underscore G E E K girl geek hearkening back to the riot girl movement uh, okay. from the late 80s and early 90s um, if you are looking for my professional work check out brentozar.com you can go to our training link to see where i will be in person you can go to our blog uh, page to read what i've been writing lately um, for other community-based stuff then check out uh, less than dot spelled out dot com. Um, and that's where I write about a lot of the other stuff that I do, the user group stuff, the conferences, the tech on tap. Um, so yeah, I'm out and about. Yeah. You're doing so much cool stuff. This is, 
This is awesome. I'm so I'm so glad uh, Carl mentioned your name and we were able to reach out to you. This is awesome. And then Carl, where can people find your awesome work? Uh, you can find me at wpdevguy.com or on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. Okay, and you can find me at ytechie.com or at twitter.com slash ytechie. And make sure you send feedback to feedback at msdevshow.com. And make sure you subscribe by searching for MS Dev Show in your podcasting app. And then uh, make sure you go on iTunes, Stitcher, any other uh, podcast aggregators, and make sure that you leave us a review. That really helps us out. We need to uh, we need to get as many reviews as we can. Um, so, Jess, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was awesome talking to you. Thanks for having me. I hope to see you guys at an event soon.